Hello and welcome to Living Wow Feminist. Living Wow Feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs, ins and outs, and the emotional rollercoaster ride of living a feminist life. I'm your host, feminist writer, researcher, and author, Jen Thorpe. Today on the podcast, I'm speaking to Belinda Mountain. Belinda studied a business science degree, but found that her love of words led her straight into working in the world of book publishing as a graduate, and then she spent around eight years working in publishing in both the United Kingdom and South Africa. In 2010, Belinda had a daughter in the same year that her mother died from a brain tumor, and soon after those life-changing events, she quit her job and started her own content agency with her business partner, Catherine Black called Black Mountain, which they still run today. The story she submitted to Living While Feminist was her first piece of writing published in a book, but she has been published extensively in print and online in publications such as Sunday Times Neighborhood, Fast Company, and Entrepreneur Magazine. In 2020, her short story was shortlisted in the Arts24 Corona Fiction Competition, which has renewed her interest in writing short stories, and the lockdown has re-inspired her poetry too. Belinda's piece in Living While Feminist is called The Most Beautiful Boy the World Has Ever Seen. In it, Belinda says, My short hair becomes a message to the world. I feel people's judgment, men and women's, in small barbs thrown my way. They are smooth things with a jagged edge said out of their own discomfort. Her piece focuses on a short haircut, misgendering and motherhood, which is what we'll be talking about today. Welcome, Belinda. Hi, Jen. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, so your piece is a very personal piece that starts with a haircut you had as a child where the shop cashier mistook you for a boy. And the piece ends with your daughter now who was mistaken for a boy when she cut her hair short to match yours. So why did you want to write about this topic for a feminist collection? Well, Jen, I actually think I, I saw the call for submissions and I remember thinking, um, it, you know, it was about hair, it was about, about bodies and how that related to the feminist experience. And, I, and I'd never really thought about that deeply. And as soon as I saw the hair, I thought, hey, I've, I've got a story um, because cutting my hair, you know, seems like such a trivial thing, but it really showed me a lot about people's attitudes towards societal norms, towards gender and then, and then it was it was pretty crazy to me that you know I'd had a short haircut and been called a boy, and then a, a whole generation later, the same thing was still happening to my daughter. And I just thought, wow, we haven't really um, progressed as far as that goes. And so I, I thought it, it made a quite a neat circular story that I wanted to tell. Also, speak about how supportive your mother was in reaction to your distress, and that at in that same year when you had your first child, that you lost your mother, which must have been incredibly difficult and I'm so sorry that you had to experience that but you described that your mom left you with little bits of advice on how to survive whether it was saving money or how to do your eyebrows and that um, as you described beautifully when the fog of grief had finally thinned you chose the same short haircut that you had had as a child and this felt like a type of honoring um, to your mother as a reader why did you decide to write about this particular moment? Yeah, you know, Jen, I think um, depending on one's relationship with your mother, mine was extremely close. Um, my mother was my anchor and um, she she grounded my whole world. So 
losing her when I when I had my first child, and I mean, which is which is quite a moment anyway, becoming a mother, um, and then losing her six months later, it was really um, my whole world was shaken. So you're right. I think subconsciously I must have been thinking of that when I cut my hair. You know, the whole life I'd be terrified to have short hair because I I, I remembered that moment. I remembered that there was some such shame associated with it. Um, and so I never wanted to have short hair again. And I hadn't. I'd never cut my hair since I was 11. And now here I was at the age of 30. And I think you're right. It was um, a kind of a celebration of her and maybe just a way of feeling closer to her and of showing her, even though she was no longer alive, that that I was honoring everything that she had taught me. Um, and that there's something about cutting your hair also, which is extremely empowering, um, you're, you're saying, you know, I'm not, I'm not tied to what society thinks is attractive or, or, you know, what men think are attractive. I'm cutting my hair and I'm just going to, I'm going to be me. Um, and so it was quite, it, yeah, it, it felt like it wasn't just, it was never just a haircut. It was much more than that. Yeah, I mean, I think there's other pieces in the collection that show that it's never just a haircut as well. Um, and you speak about in the piece how now this adult haircut gives you a type of freedom. And it's obviously showing because your daughter says she wants to get her haircut like yours. And when you're talking about that, you say, together we are rejecting the Disney princess dream, bristling against norms. Tell, you, tell me a bit about what you meant by rejecting the Disney princess dream and whether there are any Disney princesses that you see on the screen these days that make you feel more hopeful for the girls of the future. Oh, that's, that's an excellent question. I do feel, however, that Disney princesses still have rather long hair. <laughs> I don't know if many of them have short hair, but at least they are becoming more more diverse generally. Um, you know, I think there's definitely, and there are more female heroines rather than only male ones. Um, I think we've seen a lot of that in Hollywood um, and, in, and in children's stories as well. But I mean, we've still got a really, really long way to go. Um, and I and I and I feel that our daughters, as as hard as we try as mothers and as parents to show them all these different ways of existing in the world as a woman, as a man, there are still such societal norms that they feel pressured or they're conditioned almost, you know. Um, and it, it's very tough to try and balance that. Um, so I try, and you know, it's quite it's quite con- you have to be constant. You have to constantly be saying, you know, girls girls don't have to do that you know, boys don't have to do that. Um, so there's still a lot to push up against. Um, and I, I do that quite consciously as a parent. And, and I hope that it's it's wearing off on her. I think the um, actress Gina Davis has an organization that she started in the States. And she talks about um, sitting with her own kids watching TV. And then and instead of saying, you know, this is the way things have to be, or this is the way things could be, she she asks them to reflect critically. So she'll say, why do you think that the girl acted like this in this scene? Or why do you think the boy acted like this? And so then you build up this sort of um, television literacy or feminist literacy in your kids that they're able to, you know, reflect critically on those ideas themselves, which I think is very powerful. Your piece is really about um, a generational mothering and how supportive mothering and feminist parenting can really encourage bold and strong women. And um, tell me a little bit about feminism and when you heard about it and your feminist journey. Sure, you know it's it's so interesting because I think and I, when I was reading the book, um, I noticed that a lot of people possibly hadn't thought they were like they, they didn't think they were feminists until until they until something specific happened or or they said something and they got they got called out and I think my journey you know I, I was always a feminist but I didn't realize I was and I think 
the moment I realized I was was when I became a mother because suddenly you know also as a as a working woman beforehand suddenly um there were things that I was just expected to do as a, as the mother um whereas I was still expected to to work and I and I I, I didn't remember thinking oh this is I didn't obviously I knew this but I hadn't fully experienced it so that is probably how my feminist journey began and then I think also having a daughter was quite critical at first because I I I, re, I reflected that back in the way that I've started bringing her up um, and it definitely it influences the things we encourage her to do. You know, um, she she goes surfing with her father, and she's often the only only little girl her um, her age and in the waves. Um, and we yeah we're raising her to 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 do to do all kinds of things, not be limited by by her gender, um, which I think is important. Yeah. Do you do you just have one child? No, so my son is seven, so he's the younger one. Um, so it's been pretty interesting, you know, bringing up one of each, um, and and little things. Also, I think when the she's the oldest and she's more responsible, so th- there can be little things like, you know, why should she tidy the rooms just because she's older? And then I catch myself, and she's and she's the woman, she's the girl. So the son, we must get him in there, and he must be tidying as well. Um, and so it becomes this. Yeah, you just have to be very conscious of it because I, I, you know, I think there's so much patriarchy in in our society, but in the world as well, and it's it's ingrained in us as much as we try. So it's a constant, um, not a battle, but a challenge. Clementine Ford has a book called "Boys Will Be Boys: Power, Patriarchy, and Toxic Masculinity." I don't know if you've read it or, um, but it's a fantastic exploration of the ways in which the world subtly reinforces patriarchy for boys and encourages them to continue to pursue patriarchy in, you know, as a a way of life. And, and it speaks a lot about, you know, we, we often raise girls to avoid violent situations, to use technology safely, to, you know, try and be a feminist girl, but we haven't really thought a lot about what it means to raise a feminist boy, but it does sound like you're engaging with that on the day-to-day. I wonder if any of this has um, become more obvious to you during COVID and the lockdown with everyone being all at home the time, all the time. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, it's, a, it's a pretty good question because I think we've, um, we're definitely at home more. There are more, we're more conscious of who's doing chores. There's less rushing around. And also now that my son is a little bit older, you know, he's not a toddler anymore, he can he can definitely help, but he he definitely pushes back as hard as possible. And then my daughter's so willing to, to help. So this is the the I suppose the contradiction or the, the the challenge. Yeah, I mean, there's different challenges in in both of those, right? Like if you think about raising feminist girls, um, not always to be the first to offer to do. Like I think of in meetings how women are often the first to offer to take the notes as a simple example of how this plays out work life whereas I made it a very big point um when I was working in an office to not be the first to offer even though I thought I was the best note taker in the world to see where the men would offer and it was so rare that they did and I think this is the way that we are all conditioned in this sort of strange patriarchal way to do the labor that isn't very well respected or acknowledged or valued um financially yeah, it's almost like we're, we we want to be known as being helpful and being good. Um, and, I, and I think that I struggle with that because I, I, have, I have these high standards and I, and I want to be liked, I suppose. And that's the whole, we all we know that women want to be liked. And, and that's often why we don't push back or um, 
stand up in uncomfortable situations. And so that is that is something I need to teach need to teach her specifically as well. Um, it's just I suppose quite a fine balance. Different characteristics are valued or disparaged in depending on who's exhibiting them, and because the gender bias is so heavily influenced in in favor of women being accommodating or you know willing to help that when men display those traits people sort of police and punish them and say you know someone else will do it and in the same way when a woman stands up for herself or other women in the workplace she's disparaged and being seen as bossy or a bitch and we don't ever use we very rarely use the word bossy for a boy it's often only used for a girl so it really is a fine balance of encouraging a sort of assertiveness on on behalf of all kids yeah I mean I'm known in the in my family as bossy Belinda so it's <laughs> it's a real thing um and and my daughter you know exactly but there's that quote about don't call a girl bossy I don't know I don't know who said it call her a leader um yeah so I do I do try focus on that but you run your business with another woman can you tell me a little bit more about what your business does and how you see yourself living feminist values in that business if at all I, you know I think we both we started the business because we, we didn't want to work nine to five jobs and we wanted flexibility because we, we had children. So we wanted to be able to do something we loved and contribute financially, but also have the flexibility to go to our son's soccer match or our daughter's music concert. So, you know, I think it started, it started with a realization of, of what we wanted out of our lives um, as, as feminists. And I would say that Catherine is, is certainly one as well. Um, and it's been amazing seven years, really, and we've grown a lot. We've got some great clients, um, very loyal clients, and, and I get to write for, 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 for a living, which is really a privilege. I was looking at the MasterCard releases a report every year on the annual entrepreneurship statistics, and very few women in South Africa actually own a small business. And the ones that do, it's often very short-lived and it's uh, more of a subsistence business than an income-generating business. And so it is, I think, you know, something that you should be very proud of that you've made this work for such a long time. I wonder if you have any tips for women listening who are thinking of starting their own businesses on what makes a long-lasting small business. Well, I mean, that's a great question. And I and I do I do speak, I know that our educations have played a huge role in in our success, um, and we're very privileged to to have those educations. Um, and I would say that we've always come up against um, imposter syndrome. Um, specifically, it's, it's unusual. Well, not it's unusual. It's weird. We always notice and laugh at ourselves when we're when we're charging for our time. We always we started out always undervaluing ourselves because we we thought, who are we to who are we to ask someone to pay this for our skills? And I think it's only as you develop in your careers. I mean, I've now been working for about fifteen years that you start to realize your worth. And I'd say that's that's one of my biggest pieces of advice as a, as a female-run business is to, is to know your worth and to stand your ground and to, and to ask, and not even ask sometimes, just tell. And if someone's not willing to pay, then they don't have to pay. They'll just say no. Again, it comes back to this people-pleasing thing. You want to please everyone, but people should pay pay a price that, that's, that gives them the value. And they, and they will pay it, and they have, obviously, for seven years. So the, the cost and the charging was a big um, lesson that, that I think we finally got comfortable with um, and realizing that we are good at what we do but it's really taken a long a long long time um, and the confidence has has been born out of experience 
I think that's such a valuable message is around charging. I'm also a freelancer and it is one of those things where you start out and you think, oh my gosh, like this is actually how much it costs me to live and to pay my rent and to feed myself every month, but no one is going to pay me X amount for my time. But there are very useful places to go and have a look on how to work out your rate and what you want. Do you have any suggestions for people on, for, uh, you know, young businesswomen around how to get started on working that type of stuff out you've got to find um i think a mentor is is invaluable so and and often a female mentor is is even better you know someone who has a, a whole lot more experience than you who can who can kind of sense your talent or the worth that you can add and who can coach and, and guide you i wish i'd had that because I, I didn't um and you also get to this point in your career where i am now where you you want to you want to share what you've learned with people and help other people, specifically women, so that they can feel the sense of achievement that that, that we feel, um, and that they are contributing to you know not not just financially but contributing to the to the world. Like entrepreneurship, it feels like you're creating something, and it's it's an amazing feeling. I think it must be amazing, especially since you're a writer and you get to pursue your passion for your day job, which is just great. And you also had a short story listed in Arts 24 Corona Fiction Competition. Can you tell me a bit about what writing means to you and what you like to write about most? You know, I, lately I've been, I think it's obviously a very strange time in the world, but lately I've been writing a lot about about feelings and, and how people have felt trapped and um, and we've all been pretty down about life and I've been right. I suppose that writing has been a way of dealing with that, um, not necessarily escapism, but more um, working through emotions and identifying them and, and giving them names, and then learning how to process them. And making, I like to make people feel less alone. So often, if I write something and I share it, and then a reader comes back and says, "That's just how I'm feeling. I, I feel better now because I know I'm not the only person who feels that way." That for me is extremely, I'm mean, extremely powerful, and and that's the kind of writing I like to do. And why did you decide to start writing fiction for the Corona Fiction Competition? So if you're a copywriter like I am, you're writing a lot of nonfiction. You know, I, I want to have a bit of, I want to write my own, my own stories and I want to write fiction. And I really want to write a novel. I just have been, I've been a bit, I don't know, lazy or scared or all those reasons people don't write books. I mean, you've, you've written novels, so I'm, you must know how to do it. But I, I just haven't known where to start. And I, what I liked about that Corona Fiction competition is it was a tight brief, um, and I'm good at working to a brief. There's a topic, there's a word count, there's a deadline. You know, I'm quite A-type in that way, and I do love a competition. So the idea of entering something, it's a terrible trait of mine, but I like entering something. It's just, that's just how I'm built. So that's, I think that's how it started. And I've been looking, actually, there's lots of um, literary competitions online. If you want to, you know, there's poetry ones, there's ones overseas. And so it's just a nice exercise for me to practice my writing. And given that you've obviously got a job and kids to raise and a family to be a part of, how do you find time for this creative writing? So it's a strange thing. I was thinking about it the other day. I hardly watch any television. Like I, I just, I don't know if I just haven't found the right shows or I just, I'm not interested I'll start watching something and 20 minutes later I've, I've wandered off and I'm I don't know cooking or I'm reading a book so a lot of it happens at night you know maybe while my husband's watching television and the children are sleeping and then I obviously I have flexibility so you know I can if I suddenly have a great idea in the morning at the office I can write that great fiction idea and then I can write my copywriting article in the evening so I think flexibility is a huge one if I was sitting nine to five at a job on meetings the whole time it would be much harder 
But I, um, yeah, my productivity has definitely increased over lockdown. I think there's just obviously less travel. There's more time at home to think and, and to be creative. And I think dark times also spur on creativity. They, they, they definitely do. I remember when my mum died, there was just, there was so many creative thoughts. And, you know, it's, it's a hard time in the world now. And there have also been a lot of like creative thoughts just coming out of my brain. It's so amazing. Um, Elizabeth Gilbert speaks about a time when she had had an idea and she hadn't had the opportunity to actualize it. So she'd had this story idea and she hadn't finished the novel. And then when she met up with a fellow writer, they had written a very similar novel to the one that she'd had. And she speaks about it as if there are creativity and ideas are things that exist in the universe. And if you are available and open yourself and make yourself of service to those ideas, they will show up and present themselves to you, which sounds like what you're experiencing that, the, you know, when you are open to feeling and to receiving creativity, creativity comes and presents itself to you, which is a beautiful idea, I think. I, I, I mean, I feel the last few months have felt exactly like that. And I've also read Big Magic. I love that. And I remember when I read that passage by her, I thought, wow, that's kind of airy-fairy. I don't know what she means. But then lately, I will be, you know, I'll be in the kitchen. And it, it almost, honestly, feels like something's knocking on my shoulder going, here's an idea, here's an idea, here's an idea. And it just repeats itself. I mean, I'm not saying it's any kind of life-changing, brilliant idea, but it's sitting there waiting for me to capture it. Um, and so I've really felt that as a kind of esoteric, feeling so I yeah I agree with Elizabeth Gilbert I think she was she was right yeah I agree with her as well <laughs> especially when I've started something and not finished it and then I think oh that idea's gone somewhere else now it's okay <laughs> I don't have to do it mm. yeah someone else someone else can have it so I have three last questions for the end of the podcast that I'm asking everyone who comes on so don't overthink them in any way do you have a book that has inspired your feminism um, I read a lot of, I, I love Barbara Kingsolver and she's not, I mean, she, she speaks a lot about nature actually. And, and she's not, I suppose, known as a feminist writer, but I would say that her, a lot of her books, and she's got two daughters as well. A lot of her books have spoken to me um, in, in that way, in terms of feminism. As a sort of encouragement. Yes. As an encouragement. She's also, she's just a very strong personality. Um, and she, she, she butts heads often with people and she just makes her opinions known. And I just admire her, her strength, um, you know, not just as a woman, but as, as a human. Okay. Second to last question. Do you have a quote that you live by? Hmm. Uh, let me see. Um, I actually do. I have it up on my notice board. That's why I'm just having a look here. It's, it's by Gandhi and it says, be truthful, gentle and fearless, which I think is quite a good combination. Definitely, we need more of that type of energy. <laughs> and the final question that I'd like to ask you for today is, do you have any advice for other feminists on their journey? Hmm. Um, I think it's about listening and about learning. I mean, I can't tell you how much I learned reading Living While Feminist. Um, it's amazingly edited and, and the stories you chose are really, they're, they're such a wide selection and I learned so much. So I think it is about um, just educating yourself, reading widely, speaking to other feminists and other women, um, because I don't, you know, I feel like I'm quite an uneducated feminist. I, I can definitely learn a lot more. And so it's a it's a process. Um, we're all learning and we're all growing. And I think it's about sharing knowledge. That's that's the big one for me. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing your knowledge and stories of growth with everyone who's listening. Thanks. Thank you so much, Jen. That was fascinating. Love that.
Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Living Well Feminist with me, Jen Thorpe. Tune in next week for more conversations with feminists about their lives and experiences. Take care of yourselves.